you've ever read uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, an amazing author of a couple of generations ago. But he once wrote this, and when I saw it, I took notice of it and wrote it down. He said this, he said, to have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. To have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. In other words, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. Um, In fact, sometimes when we exercise our rights, we end up being wrong. I think the Apostle Paul, if he had read G.K. Chesterton, uh, which he couldn't, obviously he lived 2,000 years before him, but if he had read that quote, I think he would have, I think he would have inserted it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the first 11 verses. I think that would have been the theme of this chapter for him. We know that in this letter to the church at Corinth, Paul was trying to make a number of corrections. Young church, uh, immature, uh, were, were they Christians? The answer is yeah, well, how do we know that from chapter 1? The first few verses, he kind of sets the, this, uh, you know, that whole story straight. They were Christians, but were they mature? Uh, well, not, not really. They had a long, long way to go. And he addresses issues which showed they still had a long, long way to go. There was a lot of divisions in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I'm a disciple of Peter. Well, we're disciples of Christ. Oh, gee. You know, I mean, this is, I mean the church is being split up according to teachers. And Paul, when he heard about this, kind of went out of his mind. You know, it's like in Acts when, when uh, you know, they, they fell down to Peter and John, and they started worshiping Peter and John because they were doing miracles. And they said, hey, we're, we're men like you. It's not about us. So there was divisions in the church that had to be addressed, and, and um, he talked about the fact that uh, this church, you know, who thought of themselves as um, extremely wise, extraordinarily loving, exceptionally accepting, had led sinful, kind of gross sinful practices go on and to, really to the, to the detriment of the individual who was sinning, who needed help and correction, and even more so to the larger body of the church itself. Then he gets in chapter 6. Now, here's the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You ready? I hear that you're not taking, in the first 11 verses, I should say, I hear hear that uh, you're taking each other to secular courts. It's a sin to take other Christians to secular courts. That's it. That's the message of the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But since I still have some time left, I'm going to try to enlarge upon that just a little bit as I glance at, at my watch there, my extraordinary watch, which I talked about a few, few weeks ago. Um, uh, listen, um, Chesterton said it well, and the principle remains the same. To have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. Because sometimes when we insist on our rights, we end up being wrong. So Paul tells them that just because it was legal, just because it was acceptable, you know, to sue one another, uh, whenever disagreements arose, uh, it, it was not acceptable for Christians to be suing each other. And he gives them three reasons uh, why having to do, you know, ha- why this is just something that he found so extraordinarily terrible among them that they had to stop doing it. Because sometimes he said, you know what, you have a right to do something, but you may end up being wrong if you end up doing it. 
Now, I have to give, as we get into this chapter, a little historical background. I don't let the, your eyes roll to the back of your heads when I say history, okay? It's very, very important. And, you know, we need to know history. We need to know where we came from. History is really important because a lot of people don't know where they came from, so how can you know who you are? Now, this, again, and I've said this a hundred times, the Bible was not written to us, was it? The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. It was written to another culture, to another generation, to people with different circumstances than us. But the principles carry over to, the, to us in the 21st century. No question about that. So we need to go back and see what was the background, what was the historical background that we're talking about when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, we don't know too much about the legal process uh, in Corinth. But we know an awful lot about the legal processes that were going on uh, in uh, Athens, which is just kind of kick a can down the road to Athens. Now, two things to keep in mind as we look at this passage. Number one, you need to remember, if you didn't know, and this is a shocker to some people, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. And as a matter of course, Jews did not ordinarily take other Jews to a law in a public law court. They just didn't do that. They didn't, it was unseemly. They never did it, almost never did it. If they had a problem, they would go, you know where? To the synagogue. And they would get the synagogue rulers, and the synagogue rulers would put their head together, and they'd figure out what's going to happen. And they would decide the process of what was right and what needed to be paid and this, that. And it was in the framework of the Jewish family. They rarely, if ever, took their problems into the pagan world. Now, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons why I think that was, that was true. Not, one of the reasons that the Jews never went to the pagan officials and never went outside the synagogue and never went outside their own group was to show the world that they were unified. To show the world that, you know, they had a love for their own people. Basically, they were saying, you know what? We're different. You know, we got a problem in the family we're sticking in the fa family will figure it out. It's like somebody in your family. You know, you're, you're, you're fighting with your sister. You're fighting with your brother. Then, then a third party gets involved. And, you know, you think, you know, they think that, you know what? Oh, I'm coming to your rescue. You go, wait, hey, this is a family matter. Yeah, we'll figure this one out, right? It's, it, it's, it, it's keep it within the family. And that's what the Jews, Jews did. Another reason why I think they kept it in the family and they kept it in the synagogue, because they had the Old Testament scriptures. Because they had God's revelation, they had God's word, and basically they believed that God's word had every answer to every problem that would come up. Whether it was family problems, whether it was social, on the social level, or cultural, or even on an economic level. Now the Old Testament is not a book of economics. You're not going to get macro, microeconomics in the Old Testament. But you are going to get ways that, you know, the people of God will live. And if the people of God live in a certain way, guess what? Guess what, guess, get, guess what is one of the things that will work out? Your finances. Somehow, you know, when you have certain emphases, even as we're learning in Financial Peace University on Saturday mornings, those of us who are in the class, woo-woo, uh, we're learning, you know what, that God has certain principles, certain principles that if you follow, you know what, uh, you're not going to be, you know, staring at the ceiling at 3 o'clock in the morning, five nights a week. Because you don't know how you're going to pay for this. You don't know what you're going to do with that. See, the Jews believed that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, all the questions that they had could be answered there. Now, that's first. Second. Second thing. And historical background. What was true of the Jews was absolutely not true of the Greeks. Absolutely not. Not at all. 
in Athens, which I said we know a lot about their legal system, in Athens, citizens sued other citizens all the time. It was a blood sport. It really was. Uh, litigation went on continuously. In fact, in fact, uh, uh, everybody, one, one uh, commentator, one writer who knew uh, and was writing about this, said that almost everybody in town was kind of like a lawyer. And I read that and I go, oh, you know, using hyperbole to get your point across, you know, that's ridiculous. And then I started reading more and I started reading more and reading other authors. And I said, you know what? Uh, I think he's right. I think he's right in Athens, that that's exactly what, what the case was. Because this is what would happen. Now, let, me, let me show you why. I don't think it's an overstatement. Let's say you had a problem with your neighbor, okay? You know, a tree falls down, knocks down your fence. And, you know, what, what they would do, what the state would do was to bring an arbiter in and you would sit there with a cup of coffee, you get, you get a, you know, an Inman's square crumb cake, you sit there, you know, at the table, and you're munching and you're eating, figure it out, okay? Just for, now, a lot of times that, that, that wasn't it, okay? So what they would do, the next step they would do, was that they would bring in a kind of higher level arbiter and see if we could figure it out. He came from a group called the Forty, because they were, yeah, very good, there you go. You're right on it today. You're listening. There were 40 people involved, okay? Now, here's the deal. If you lived in Athens, let's say you were a bricklayer. Let's say you were, you know, a, a tent maker. You did whatever. When you hit your 60th birthday, which a lot of people never hit back then, right? You hit your 60th birthday. It didn't matter whether you were a bricklayer. didn't matter whether you were a tent maker. You know what you became on your 60th birthday? Between the day you became 60 and the day you celebrated your 61st birthday, you know what your occupation was? Arbiter. You became an arbiter. You became uh, part of this group of people who, you know, would sit down and try next level. No, Animan's cake, blah, blah, didn't work. Okay, next you would become part of that group to try to get people together. So you figure, like, you know, you're going to be turned 60, you're like 56, you go, hey, I may, miracle, miracles, I may make 60. So they would start studying, and they'd start figuring out, I'm going to be an arbiter. I have a second, you know, for a year, a hugely important, you know, vocation, and so they would start studying. Uh, and, and so they knew the law. Now, what would happen if that didn't work, one, two, Third thing that would happen is that you would go to the multiple court system in Athens. And in small cases, you know, they would have 201 people sitting on the jury. 201 people, hang on. You could have a jury in larger cases of between 1 and 6,000 people. How would you like to be part of that jury pool and trying to figure that one out, right? 6,000 people. So juries uh, with big cases were big. They were, they were involved. Everybody got into the act. Now, if you sat on one of those juries, you had to be 30 years old. And you couldn't say no, kind of like us, right? You know, unless, well, you, for the most part now, they've closed the loopholes. 30 years old. So even the 30, when you become 26, you become 27, you become 28. Number one, you grew up in this litigious community. You understood law. And you would kind of prepare for being, you know, to be one who would be seated on the jury. Now, law was a big deal, a very, very big deal. So it's not a stretch to say that everybody in Athens was sort of a lawyer. Now you got these people in the Corinthian church, in the Corinthian church, 
and they're hearing the gospel for the first time. The Apostle Paul comes into town, and he's telling them about, we just sang, tell them about Yahweh. Tell them about a single God. Tell them about, you know what, who made the heavens and the earth and who gave his son to die for your sins, and they're hearing this, and they're starting to get saved, and they're starting to come into the church. But listen, as they were coming into the church, they were dragging behind them their philosophies, they were dragging their immoralities, they were dragging their litigious attitudes all into the church. The whole style of life that they used to have, they brought with them into the church. They were having a very, very hard time making breaks with certain things. Some things weren't as hard, but many things were very, very difficult. Okay, so I, I, I mentioned three reasons why we have a right, you know, sometimes to do a certain thing, but at the same time, maybe you shouldn't be doing it, right? Uh, because sometimes when we insist on our rights, we may end up wrong. So how did Paul know that the church at Corinth was messing up? How did he know that they were doing, even though they had a right to do this, they were doing wrong by suing one another? Well, because he looked at them and he said, you know what, these people have lost their senses. Their actions were absolutely senseless. Um, he said this, he said, if any uh, of you have a, uh, has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? What Paul does here is he gives uh, this crew who loves to argue, loves to litigate, loves to debate, he gives them something called argumentum a fittoria. Argumentum a fittori. Fittori, excuse me. Which I thought, I thought it was a new dish maybe down at the Italian restaurant, when I first heard it, I said, you know, no. Actually, it's Latin. It's Latin, and it means from the stronger thing. From the stronger thing. And, and this is for the eggheads who are taking uh, notes, you know, and writing down. It means, and this is the te te technical definition, it's a form of argumentation which draws upon existing confidence in a proposition to argue in favor of a second proposition that is held to be implicit in the first. What does that mean? Okay. For the rest of us, what does that mean? Well, for the rest of it, it means you're driving uh, down Laurel Avenue, you go out of our parking lot, you make a left on Laurel Avenue, and you hit the speed trap, spe speed trap, which is just over the bridge, which is exactly what it is, because it goes down to, goes down to 25 miles an hour, right? 25 miles an hour, did you ever see the Flintstones? See, 25 miles an hour is like running with your car. If you, had, if you could run with your feet, under, that's about how fa fast you could possibly go. It is, you know, it, it, who, nobody drives 25 miles an hour. And I think they, they kind of know that. But anyway. Uh, let, so let's say you go over the bridge, and all of a sudden, you hit, you know, it's 25 miles an hour, but you're going 35 miles an hour. You're going 10 miles over the, over the speed limit. And the cop pulls you over, and he says, you know what, $50 fine. It's more than that, plus it's points. But anyway, let's just, for argument's sake, $50. Now, it can be inferred a fortiori that driving 20 miles over the speed limit would at least be punishable by a fine of $50, wouldn't you say? Uh, you know, it's not going to be like, 
you know, it's too bad you weren't going 20 miles because it's only $20 if you go 20 miles over the space. That's not going to happen. We know that. Since the first thing is true, the second thing's got to be true. You know, you get a test back, and, and you, you, it's kind of a low grade, and you're looking through it, and, and you, you, you find five points, five points that you should have gotten. And you go up to the teacher, and you're arguing back and forth, and, and basically the teacher says, you know what, you don't deserve the five points, and now if I was going to give to you, I'm not because you're just being a jerk and anyway. So, uh, and, and so you can infer a fortiori that the teacher will also refuse to raise the student's grade 10 points, wouldn't you? Yes, no, I'm not raising you a grade five. I'm going to raise a 10. Of course not. That's not going to happen. It's a very effective way to make a point. Politicians do it all the time. Now, Paul the Apostle argues from the greater to the lesser many times. He did it in Romans chapter 8. You remember in Romans chapter 8, he said this. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here it is. How will he not also with him graciously give all things? He came and gave us the greatest thing that he could give his son to die on a cross as a substitute and to take upon himself the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. We had no greater need and he had no greater gift. So we come to him, we who are Christians, and we understand that and we're saved by grace. But then we say, well, you know what? My wheels have, are starting to get a little shaky in my car, and I need some work. But you know what? God, I can't go to God's never going to provide something like that. And we go to God, and we go, you know what, well, God? You know, could you please? I need transportation. I need to. And we think that God's going to go. Well, give me a break. I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'll give you my son to die on the cross, but I'm certainly not going to give you wheels to get to work. See, Paul's saying that's so stupid. That's like ridiculous. If you accept the first thing, why would not you accept the second thing? That's what he's saying. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. And what he's saying here is, you guys are taking each other to court. Great. Good move, guys. Not to, you know, not to make you feel bad or anything like that. But can't you see that anybody who does such a thing is a senseless person? That you've left your senses behind? Then he goes in to his argument. Do you know, he says, that the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you realize that someday saints are going to judge the world? Listen to what the Bible teaches. This is a shock to some people. Sometimes I'm shocked that it's a shock. The Bible very clearly teaches that someday the Lord Jesus is coming back to earth. Second coming, we've all heard about that. Okay? He's going to set up his earthly kingdom, and the Bible promises that his people, the children of God, all throughout all the ages, are going to reign with Christ in his kingdom. We will be his viceroys, his second-in-commands, his little kings, if you will have it. We will be rulers. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says this, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on the throne. When Jesus Christ returns, he will set up his kingdom, and the saints are going to sit in seats of judgment. We will be judges in the kingdom. We will rule over the nations. In Matthew chapter 19, in Luke chapter 22, it tells us very clearly that the apostles will reign on thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. 
The apostles of uh, Christ, they will be rulers, but it's not just them, it's us too. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, it says this, And he that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And listen, he shall rule, with, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken. Someday we are going to rule with Christ. We will be making decisions as Christ's co-regents. Now, Paul is saying, if we're going to do that, if, if you guys are going to be on the Supreme Court of Christ, ruling over the world, it seems pretty apparent to me that you should be, be able to handle local matters. See, that's the point here. We should be able to judge our own private matters. But that was not what was happening. Instead of, the, of doing you know, that in Corinth, they were taking every little minuscule thing to pagan courts and just exposing their bitterness, exposing their carnality, exposing their pride. Then he says, then he says this. He says, hang on, I got a better one. Ready? Verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? We're not going to get into it, okay? Angelology. We're not getting into it right now, but I'm going to just tell you this. There's two kinds of angels, the scripture says. There's good angels, there's bad angels, uh, evil and good. And 2 Peter chapter 2, 4 says this. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them in chains of darkness to be held for what? For judgment. It says the exact same thing in Jude, verse 6. So there's going to be a judgment of evil angels. And you know what it sounds like to me? That we're going to be part of that. So, Paul says, if you're going to do that, you mean to tell me you guys can't figure out a financial... You know, when Deacon Jones, after church backs up, you know, and, and kind of does a fender bender with Sister Smith into her, the front end of her new Hyundai. You mean to tell me you got to take that to court? You're joking, right? He's very sarcastic. He's, he's like infuriated. You know, he says three times, he uses an expression, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you guys get, Really? You're taking each other to court over this? Ridiculous. He says, you know what? Obviously, you guys really don't care. You don't care about what anybody else thinks. You don't care about what any, anyone else feels. You are determined to act in your own self-interest, regardless of the injuries that may even be done to other people. Folks, listen. Just because you have a right to do a thing, it is not at all the same as being right in doing it. Because sometimes, when we insist on our rights, we may end up doing wrong. Paul knew how it worked. You know, Paul was a, he was a man of the world. He got it. Some things, some things do not change. He, he, know, he knew human nature. Now, you see one of your, you got two boys, and you see them, they don't know you're looking at them, but you see them outside, and they're walking, and the older one just, pokes the younger one no reason there was nothing you can't tell it was just a poke maybe a little bing to the head or something like that that never happens i know but i've heard it happens outside the church with some pagan 
you know, families out there. So, I, and then all of a sudden, you're watching this, you're going, what is wrong with it? And the little one turns around and punches the big one in the shoulder. Boom! Way out of proportion to this. I mean, you know, we're coming back, boom. But you know what? That's human nature. That's what we do. You know, someone slaps us and we belt them. They throw a rock at our car, we smash a shovel through their front windshield. They call us a jerk and we call them every four-letter word. We never speak like that. All of a sudden, it's coming out. We don't even know where it came from. That's how it works. The Apostle Paul understood that. Look at our modern courts, how it works in our modern courts. What happens in our courts today goes way beyond mere retaliation or, ret or excuse me, retribution. Retribution is paying back exactly. This was damage. Oh, you know what? It's $380. Okay, here's $380. That, you know, that, that is um, ret uh, retribution. Today, you know what we take into consideration when you go into sec secular courts? Mental anguish inconvenience, embarrassment. This embarrassed me. This whole situation just embarrassed me. Loss of professional services, on and on and on it goes. And, 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 and after a while, I got to tell you, it all starts to sound as if there's a healthy dose, dose of vindictiveness involved in a lot of this. Doesn't it? You know, you, you, I, I just saw it the other day. You know what? If you or a loved one have been hurt in an accident, you may be entitled to a financial settlement. You know, write to, you know, call us at Shyster and Shyster and we can help you, you know, uh, whatever, you know. And these guys, you know, I mean, they're just waiting. They're just waiting for, for people to do that. And you know they're not, they're not trying to get back just a little bit of money. You know what they're saying? Hey, let's find out how we can nail this guy to the wall and we'll all get rich in the process. And you got to wonder, if we... We, oh, I said we, I meant they, the Corinthians, not us. You wonder if the Corinthians had allowed the principle of retaliation to kind of seamlessly and legally lead them to vindictiveness. Haddon Robinson once said this, I never forgot it. He said, we're not happy with getting even. We want to get ahead. He knew, the Apostle Paul, that when people went to court, they never went to court just to get the repair bill covered. They never did that. When secular people got involved and you started suing, you're suing for suffering and all these other things, and he knew it was going to go there. And he says in verse 4 this. Listen what he, look, look what Paul says in verse 4. He said, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Now, you look at that and you say, oh, gee, he's really coming down on the secular judges. He's like, what is he saying? That secular judges can't ever bring justice? That's not what he's saying. And he's really not coming down on secular judges. This was not a put-down, per se, of secular courts. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul, we know that. Look, read through the book of Acts. He, he availed himself to the secular courts, didn't he, at times? He, he was very happy for Roman justice a couple of times we, we could read. He admired it, he honored the Roman law. Um, but as one commentator said, he said this. He said, he is saying, the Apostle Paul, he is saying that human law by its very nature has to deal with trivial, superficial things, with actions, and not with urges and deep, hidden desires and motives. 
Why is that so, that, that was a brilliant insight. Why is that so brilliant and why do we need to know that? Because our laws do not judge motivations. They don't. What do they judge? They judge action. Uh, but the people of God who reportedly have the Spirit of God living in them, see, when they look at something, they go deeper. They think deeper. Paul's saying, if you are learning during the course of your life, presumably they had been learning, although eh, we're not sure how much, if you have been learning how to go deeper than actions, how to understand what is going on at a deeper, you know, psychological, spiritual level with individuals and why people act the way they do and what is wrong and what is right about those feelings and urges and desires within you, then surely, surely, he says, you ought to be competent to judge simple cases that deal with actions of human beings among yourselves without taking them to a secular court. Gordon Fee wrote this. He said, a secular judge who does not understand the relationship of one Christian to another, who has no concept of the fatherhood of God and the family life of believers, who does not understand that we are members one of another, and who does not see our relationship to Christ, what our relationship to Christ is, therefore, not to be highly esteemed as a judge of matters concerned, should not be highly esteemed as a judge in matters concerning believers. See, that's, that's exactly what Paul is saying. The, the secular judge, he doesn't get it. See, he, he, he doesn't get what we get. Yeah, th that's not, you know, that's not us looking down our nose. This is grace, 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 grace. God's spirit teaches us. And we go deeper. We look deeper. Our concerns are different. We're not just concerned with what has happened. We're concerned as to why it happens and to address those things. Why would you take these cases, Paul says, before unsaved people and not before the saints, when the saints are the one, ones who know the word of God, who have the spirit of God living in them, who understand God's principles? The saints are the ones who are possessing the Spirit of God, and they can lead to a decision for you. Their actions, listen, on a whole bunch of levels, their actions just made no sense to Paul. They just were senseless. He said, I, you know, why, whatever. I don't, I don't get it. But there was more. And man, I'll tell you, you read this, this next point, and uh, Paul was, he was, you know, he was really cut with this. He said, your actions are shameful. He said, they are shameful. I say this to shame you. Remember before he said, the chapter before, and I'm not, I'm not doing this to shame you. You know, he's like tiptoeing. Now he says, I want you to feel something with this. Because maybe if you feel shame, then you will take a step back and say, you know what? Maybe I've sinned. And then maybe you will repent. And then God will forgive, and then there'll be a different ending. See, he wants to shame them. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there was nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Really? Verse 6. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. He said, you guys should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourselves. But you know what? They weren't. They weren't ashamed. 
And you could almost hear the shocked tone of voice of the apostle coming across the pages. He cannot believe that these Corinthians will actually forsake the cause of Christ to this degree. Christians? Yeah, most of them were. But man, come on. Robert Cleaver Chapman. He was known as the apostle of love. He was a pastor. He was a teacher. He was an evangelism. He lived to be 99 years old, and uh, he died in 1903. It was written, one, one person writing about him, he lived an amazing life. They, they wrote this about him. It said, he labored for 70 years in a small town in a remote corner of England, yet he became a living legend. As a young man, Winston Churchill was taken to visit him. Charles Spurgeon called him, quote, the saintliest man I ever knew. Robert Cleaver Chapman is important because of the life he lived. He once said, my business is to love others and not to seek that others shall love me. When they said that he would never make a great preacher, Chapman replied, there are many who preach Christ, but not so many who live Christ. My great aim will be to live Christ. John Nelson Darby said of, said of Robert Chapman, he lives what I preach. Chapman once wrote this. He said, the titles given to the church in scripture bespeak heavenly unity, such as the body, the vine, the temple of God, a holy nation, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Such words set forth the church of God as a witness for him in the world. But the names which have been invented by men are names of sex and declare our shame. Now, some have said that this Baptist preacher um, became anti-denominational as he got older. I am not. But you know what? They, they said he did. And it, it could be true. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe that's where the shame stuff uh, you know, came in. But I wonder... You know, as I was, I read his stuff, and I was wondering, I wonder if it had to do more uh, with the fact that he desired to see the body of Christ come together to reach out to a world that is desperately, desperately looking for answers, desperately needy, desperately hurting, hoping that someone with half a brain who makes some logic you know, out of, out of conversation, can come and explain some questions that they have always had. Um, I wonder if that's really what it was all about. If his concern was for the sake of the kingdom and for the people who walked around and walk around in our daily lives who just don't know. Some years ago, we changed the name of our church from the West Essex Baptist Church to, very good, there you go, not a direct question, the Crossing Church. And it was kind of a long process, and you know, with names, it's like, uh, it's, it's really tough because there's emotional ties, and you know, my uncle is the one who, you know, put in the, the form that we, you know, and it's like, oh, okay. It's like the reason why we could never throw anything out for years. It was like downstairs we had all this junk, and it was like, well, that belongs to Mrs. So-and-so's aunt, you know, donated that. We got, it's like, oh, 
Okay. Anyway, so it's too much. It's more information. Let me get back. I digress. Anyway, um, we went from the Rust Essex Baptist Church to the Crossing Church. And you know what? It was so funny. I was looking for something yesterday, looking for something totally uh, not, you know, removed from this. But I came across a letter that I wrote to the congregation of the West Essex Baptist Church in preparation for that change. And this is what I wrote. I said, please pray that in the years to come, we as a local church will develop into a place where scores of people finally cross over to become sons of God. A place where Christ followers in large numbers will be willing to take a risk, walk over to where people are, grab them by the hand, and escort them toward the kingdom. A place where we, with increasing regularity, will partner with other local believers with like-minded faith to become a bridge to God for a world that does not know him. On the surface, a name is a little thing, but maybe, just maybe, it is powerful enough to send a message to those outside the walls and inside that we are desperately interested in that which most interests God. And I got to tell you, I read that yesterday, and I, I didn't even remember writing it. I don't remember anything about it. But as I, I, I looked at it, I'm not ashamed to say I got a little teary-eyed. I honestly did. Because I think in some small measure, in the years since, in a very imperfect way, we have begun to do that to the glory of God. Now, there are times in our life when there, there are these specific, they come, they're gone, they're here one minute, they're gone the next. There are unique opportunities for the gospel, for God to use us to speak the gospel into hard, calloused hearts. I think in this section, the Apostle Paul is addressing times when depending how the children of righteousness react to situations presented to them, they can be used as a catalyst to make people step back, think about what is truly important in their lives, and maybe plant some what? Some seeds into their life. The Apostle Paul in verse 7 said this. He said, to have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you no matter who wins the lawsuit you know who loses jesus jesus loses no matter who wins the lawsuit the gospel is going to suffer when christians go to war with one another it really doesn't make any difference who wins christ loses because there are people that are watching there are judges and juries and people and you know talk and gossip and you know what when the gossip gets out that the believers are fighting in an aggressive way, I want to tell you something. The cause of Christ is hurt. There's a church that um, is up where my parents used to live, up by West Point. Just came to my mind this minute. That church, in the first 10 years that they lived up there, went through, I think, three splits. And I remember, you know, and I wasn't living there at the time because I was growing, I was out, and I'm going... This church, this church is doomed. They are, do they are, I don't, you know, how I mean this, they're cursed. They're, they're, they will never rise. Folks, that was almost 30 years ago. That church today is tiny, 
it's, I don't even know how they, I don't even know how they, they operate. They've had a series of pastors come through. You know what? Um, because the community that they're trying to reach, they're still, they, they still are, the ones who saw all the vindictiveness and the fights and the acrimony, see, they're still around. They're going, oh, yeah, I need that in my life. That's what I need. I need that God in my life. Are you kidding me? The Apostle Paul says, you've already lost. Because people look at this and they say, you know, you are no better than us. You're not made of anything different than us. You have to have a judge, a secular judge, come and settle disputes between you. So Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong, uh, wrong and defraud, and that even to your own brothers. What he's suggesting here is that these matters that are brought for settlement cannot be all that important when you consider the damage, when you consider the injury that would be done by bringing them to a secular court to settle it. After all the loss of money, if the whole cause of Christ and the gospel is going to lose its attractiveness in the eyes of the world around us, who cares? Now, I know, listen, I'm not going into this because that's not the focus today. I know that there are times and situations where in order to protect other human beings, not me, other individuals, we may have no recourse but the secular courts. That's going to take me 20 minutes. I'm not doing it, okay? But the Apostle Paul says, you know what? This church at Corinth, they weren't even, they weren't even considering having the church arbitrate. Merely having a right to do a thing is not at all the same as being right in doing it. Because sometimes when we insist on our rights, we end up doing wrong. One more. One more. Paul, Paul noticed. Quick one. Their actions were short-sighted. They, they, they showed themselves to be senseless, pulling no punches. He calls their lawsuits against each other shameful. And then he said one more thing. He says their actions were short-sighted. Cited. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know what Paul's doing here? He's adding taking a brother to court with this list. He's lumping him right in. He's saying this is all, this is all one big cesspool pile, and you guys are a part of it. He adds it to that. John said in 1 John, he said, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. Folks, Jesus came to die because we were defenseless against the charges leveled against All of those charges, we were defenseless against them. He died because there was no other way that we could be rescued. 
We are lawbreakers, the Bible says. The breaking of law calls for punishment. We had a mountainous legal debt to pay. And what happens when we, in faith, receive the gift of Christ's substitutionary death? You know what happens? For one thing, we're forgiven. He picks up the tab to our legal debt. That's amazing. He picks up the entire tab for our debt. And folks, we also need to remember this. Jesus Christ did not die merely to pay your legal fees. The fact that that is often overlooked is that Christ died to begin smashing the works of Satan in your life. Smashing them. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, he said this, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, the reason the Son of God appeared... Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, quickly, let me rush in because everyone's going, hamna, 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 hamna. Okay, he's not talking about sinlessness here. John himself said that Christians are not sinless. If you read 1 John, throughout 1 John, in fact, he said, if you say you're without sin, what are you? You're a liar, or a liar. So, you know what? And it's not that you're not, you didn't even sin this morning or yesterday or will this afternoon in some way. To fully understand what John is saying here, you've got to understand the tense of the verb that he's using. In the Greek, a present tense verb always indicates continuous, repeated activity. John is emphasizing ongoing, habitual sin in the life of an individual, listen, who has no intention of either addressing or repenting of those sins. He said these sins should have no place in the life of a born-again believer. And you know what? That makes sense. That makes sense. If Christ came to break the pattern of lawlessness in my life by, by making me legally free and holy as he is holy, if he gives uh, given to me the spirit of Jesus to instruct and teach and encourage me, then it would make sense that I would be in a progressive sort of way starting to see fruit in my life starting to see the old patterns beginning to be smashed of lawlessness and the works of the devil in my life. He came to replace a spirit of rebellion against God with the spirit of Jesus, who makes us like him. He came to make us, in a word, folks, new people. People forgiven and people who are holy. Part of that newness has to do with replacing sinful, rebellious hearts with humble, soft, open ones. Part of the newness has to do with making us holy, starting now. To take the destruction that sin has wrought and turn it around in our life a day at a time, to slowly unlock the chains that Satan has bound us with, sometimes for years Sometimes we're not even aware of it, as we talked about last week. One by one, he came to make us holy. But the Corinthians, they kept taking each other to court. It, 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 it was proof positive in the mind of the Apostle Paul that they didn't understand the second part of that equation. They knew Christ came to save them, but somehow the holiness thing got lost in the shuffle. And he said if they persisted in clinging to their own ways, without old ways, without even considering obedience to the call of God in their life, that was a really 
really bad sign. Merely having a right to do a thing is not at all the same thing as being right in doing it. Because folks, sometimes, sometimes when we insist on our rights, we may end up being wrong. Years ago, before DNA testing happened, uh, law enforcement came up with this amazing discovery. And it, it changed, it, it, it changed uh, uh, the legal process, it changed you know, investigations, it changed everything. You know what they discovered? They discovered that everybody was carrying a marker on their body that was individual to them alone. You know where it was? Fingerprints. When that happened, it changed everything in law enforcement. It changed everything. Now it's somebody's, it's like, I wasn't there. Well, come here. Let me put you. These match. I think you were there. You know, all of a sudden it was like, you're kidding me. Okay, I go, you know, go to jail. There we go. Now, now it, it, this unique marker was on everyone. And when they discovered the technique to harness the information, what was to everybody before that invisible? Nobody said, you know, when, you know in, in, in 1760, you know, Benjamin Franklin was going around to George Washington and said, hey, let's compare fingerprints here, George. I mean, they didn't, you know, it's like, oh, they got these lines. They didn't even think twice about it, okay? But when, we, when they figured out how to take this invisible thing and make it visible, everything changed. Now there was a way to objectively test the truth of a witness's statement. And listen, if God is in the life of an individual, folks, his fingerprints will be all over them. It is inescapable. Someone rightly said this, I'm not what I ought or was made to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be, and by the grace of God, I'm not what I will one day be. I think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying to the church. Merely having a right to do a thing is not at all the same thing as being right in doing it. Because sometimes when we insist on our rights, we end up being wrong. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, gave up all his rights and his power to become a servant of all, to die for you and to die for me, to save us and to make us holy. And everyone who follows him will believe that and will pursue that and will be in increasing measure obedient.